Hello and welcome to The Book Album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gens. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello and welcome to the show. Hello and herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. So excited to welcome you all today to An Error in Chemistry by William Faulkner. This is the fifth episode in our Faulkner Night's Gambit series. If you haven't listened to the other episodes, Monk, Smoke, Hand Upon the Waters, Tomorrow, it's certainly not required that you go back and listen for this because these are all independent short stories or short works from William Faulkner, but it's certainly fun, <laughs> especially since we're almost to the end of this series. And I'm excited for this one. This was one of the more difficult texts in general from this collection. And certainly there's a lot, a lot to talk about with it, especially with regard to its own biographical history, which is the first thing we'll touch on. So this um, short story was published in June of 1946 in Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine which was sort of like a commercialized tabloid type of publication and Faulkner was very critical of these types of publications not only in his early novels from his sort of mid-career journey but just in general he wrote critically of them in letters um, and this story indeed, interestingly, did not make the cut for his first sort of go-to publications, which were the Saturday Evening Post and Collier. Interestingly, this story took a span of six years to publish, so the original sort of more well-known draft of this story from the year 1940 when the story originally got rejected from all of these publications. It was basically like it had a lot of the main points, um, but there's a key 19 lines of text, which we'll talk about in a minute, that Faulkner added after the story was getting uh, reviewed for publication in EQMM, Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine that draft, the one from 1945, has those key 19 lines of text. There, It's a revised typescript and it explains for non-southern audiences what the error in chemistry actually is um, and makes the story approachable to readers not only outside of, I think, the South, but to readers outside of time. And that's what makes, or rather helps, to make this story approachable today. Um, and I will say that this story I read twice through. It's the only story that after the first reading, I realized it just didn't suffice for a podcast on the story. And so when I, as soon as I finished it, I read it again. Um, and these stories, you know, I've probably like reread sections five, six, seven times um, and reread major parts of them more than that. 
um, to prepare these episodes, but for, you know, this kind of a work that's so dense, um, I needed more space. And so I will say that from the outset, that this is just one of the denser, sort of more distant, less approachable texts in this volume. If we get into the actual biographical story behind this text, it's actually quite interesting. So there's, um, there was this editor and publisher named Daniel Nathan, who was known as Denay, <laughs> like D-A-N-N-A-Y is the written, I'm not sure how that was pronounced. Um, I'm just going to call him Denay. So Denay um, was the main editor, one of the founders of EQMM, Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, in which this short story originally appeared. And Faulkner, though disparaging of these types of publications, needed the money due to some personal circumstances, which you can read about in the intro of this wonderful edition of Night's Gambit by John N. Duval is the editor. Um, but he needed the money, and there was also a prize going on with like the equivalent of like twenty-five, twenty-six thousand dollars. Um, as the first prize winner, and I think it was $2,000 at the time. So Faulkner was like, great, this is easy money, <laughs> like, I'm definitely gonna just publish here. Um, and pa Faulkner got second prize for um, error, the error, an error in chemistry, uh, which he was very, very upset about, and he wrote about it in some letters, and the letters are quoted in the introduction. It's quite funny to read. Um, but this editor, Danae, uh, had a really large role at the time, not only in establishing detective fiction and mystery as a genre in its own right, but also in reprinting Faulkner for post-World War II audiences. And this is something that I haven't gotten into a ton in my Faulkner research, I have to be honest. Um, but from what I understand, there's essentially two like big sources um, for post-World War II audiences reading Faulkner. One is the Cowley Portable Faulkner, which was kind of like a way to just mass market like Faulkner and like to just get him out. Um, and then there is Danae's efforts in um, republishing, reprinting um, short stories by William Faulkner. Um, and he does this with several short stories, not just an air in chemistry, which was sort of like the original debut of that short story. He will reprint short stories um, earlier from Faulkner. And he was a writer himself. He wrote under the uh, <laughs> pseudonym um, as well of the magazine. Um, so yeah, he just had these like aspirations for um, the mystery genre, which I find fascinating and also very valuable um, for today's reader because mystery has become such a, an entity in its own right. And, you know, the Cowley book was it had a different target audience than this mystery magazine, right? So um, 
Faulkner has this relationship sort of to modernism or to like southernness um, and I think that the mystery magazine and something that I think Duval articulates well in this introduction is that it was a way to see Faulkner outside of those highly intellectual domains. I'm going to read from page XXVI and the following page of the introduction of this edition. So this is talking about Danae's edits to an error in chemistry, what he actually did um, to influence the story. So I'm going to start on page XXVI and go to the next page. Quote, when Danae offered to buy an error in chemistry, he asked if Faulkner would clear up an ambiguity in the story. The most substantive addition Faulkner made to the 1940 typescript likely explains why the other magazines have rejected the story as originally written. The key plot moments simply did not explain. Faulkner assumed that everyone knew how to make a cold toddy. As a result, Joel Flint's fatal error, putting a spoonful of sugar directly into the whiskey, does not account for Stevens's response. In the revised version of the climax, Faulkner spells it out with 19 additional lines of typed text. One must mix the sugar with water first because sugar will not dissolve in whiskey, knowledge passed down from father to son. The addition clarifies what the error in chemistry actually is so that the reader better understands why Stevens immediately leaps on Flint, the imposter, for his failure to make the toddy as Wes Pritchell surely would have, unquote. And he goes on to explain the other edits that are not as helpful from Danae, such as removing some of the southernness from the novel, for example, and also um, his relationship with racism um, in general, but also in this text specifically. I'm going to also quote from page XXVIII um, about the relationship that late Faulkner, post-World War II Faulkner and his reception had with Denae and as well with this Cowley edition. Quote, Denae twice reprinted Faulkner stories. The January 1944 issue included The Hound and the October 1947 issue featured Smoke. In each instance, Denae included a laudatory headnote about Faulkner's fiction in many ways, Danae is as important as Malcolm Cowley in bringing Faulkner to the attention of post-war American readers. In addition to promoting Faulkner in EQMM, Danny also reprinted Faulkner's stories in several anthologies of detective and crime fiction that he edited in the 1940s and 1950s. Cowley's 1946 Portable Faulkner is unquestionably important to Faulkner's post-war reception, but far fewer readers picked up this volume than the more than 100,000 readers who eagerly devoured EQMM every month. Cowley helped construct the high culture Faulkner, but Danae, who included stories by Agatha Christie in each of the three issues in which Faulkner's fiction appeared, imagined a Faulkner with broad cultural next page appeal, an author one might read for pleasure and not because of his relation to high modernism or his role as a southern moralist, unquote. Strong writing from uh, John Duval here. 
Uh, I just devour like <laughs> these introduction sections from him. They're so, so informative. Um, lend a lot to the texts that we look at. That is all for the biographical information for this short story. Let's get into the plot. The story starts out in, I think, an unexpected way in the sense that it starts with a sort of hermit, kind of like poor white rancher type of character. His name is Old Man Pritchell. His daughter gets killed by her husband um, and her husband's name is Flint and he is sort of this foreigner. He came to town uh, traveling with a circus. Uh, it seems like he basically worked in the circus in sort of a traveling role for a long time before he settled down with the daughter. And there's kind of this like general confusion about why he would settle with the daughter as well because she's sort of just old man Pritchell's like house cleaner and things and he takes her away from that role in some respects and becomes a husband that nobody thought she would ever have and so there's kind of this general confusion about um, old man Pritchell, his daughter, and Flint, this foreigner who infiltrates the family in some senses. So he kills the daughter and it's no accident. He turns in his rifle to the sheriff and he basically says, I killed her. The sheriff obviously imprisons him and he, uh, there's a really funny moment in the story where the sheriff is talking to Gavin Stevens, our like resident detective, the one who is sort of finding out and, um, intuiting all of the happenings behind these stories. He's kind of like the Sherlock Holmes figure or the Dupont figure if you're an Edgar Allan Poe fan. Um, and they're talking and um, Gavin Stevens says something to the extent of, well, he told us why he wanted to be imprisoned. He wanted to be imprisoned so he could escape prison. <laughs> Um, which is just so funny, like the way that Gavin Stevens' logic works is it's just so smart and so intuitive, but it's also like there's a, a spirit of lightness there as well um, that's so enjoyable as a reader to read. I'm a big fan of Stevens. So Flint escapes prison and he's nowhere to be found, like nowhere. He's just up and disappeared. And Old Man Pritchell, who has somehow survived um, all of these happenings with his daughter, etc., is locked up in his house. And he is accepting food and some help from neighbors, but other than that is being his cankerous old self and being quite rude and quite mean to the people who are helping him. Days pass and they're figuring out not only the affairs of the daughter, but also trying to find Flint still, trying to take care of the old man still, keeping him on watch because obviously he's the next target of sorts. And the insurance on old man Pritchell's daughter is claimed, which means that this sort of 
crazy death that happens. Um, somebody's claiming insurance money on it, which appears to be Old Man Pritchell. Um, and it's this like kind of weird relationship, right? Because his daughter gets murdered. And then a couple days later, he's claiming the insurance on it, even though her murder is still at large, so to speak. He also makes the very uncharacteristic decision of selling his land. On his land is a very valuable sort of clay type of substance. Um, also there's possibly artifacts, um, Native American or other types of artifacts that the university, the local university is interested in. So he doesn't want to sell his land, it's kind of this like typical relationship of like this is my property like you know this is something that's sacred to me in that sense but he decides after all of this commotion to sell his land there's a couple other like key hints along the way but essentially old man Pritchell he's acting the way that he's acting is not normal but it is almost explained by the grief that he must feel for losing his last child. Let's go a little bit to Flint here. So the character Flint, um, Gavin, Stevens, and the sheriff, they find information on him. Um, he has this sort of history as a circus man. Um, and when Gavin Stevens and the sheriff go to visit old man Pritchell, um, to sort of, you know, find out what's going on with the sale of the land and all these unexpected moves. He says, um, let's toast. And he starts to make a cold toddy. And when he does that, he puts the sugar in with the whiskey in such a way that the sugar clumps at the bottom. Um, and everybody knows that you have to dissolve the sugar in water first before putting it in the drink otherwise it just will be disgusting and clumpy um, and that's the moment when Gavin Stevens realizes that the man they've been looking for all along Flint is in a disguise of old man Pritchell and he's been acting as old man Pritchell this whole time and Stevens bags him right then and there and it is um, in the end, like, that is what happened. Flint was posing as Old Man Pritchell in order to get the money from his land. So, yes, Flint, uh, was using his circus disguise, circus, um, not his circus disguise, but his, his circus skills, okay, and he was posing as Old Man Pritchell, except for this error in chemistry, making a cold toddy, which old man Pritchell would have absolutely made the right way. He's a foreigner, he doesn't know how to make this drink the right way, and that is the fatal error that ruins his whole scheme. So let's talk about some cross-literary comparisons with this novel, and then we'll end with some quotes. So I mentioned in the beginning of this episode how difficult it was to digest this short story. I think the way that it's written, 
the way that sort of the sheriff's dialogue with Gavin Stevens plays a role. Um, and their dialogue is dense in the sense that they are inferring a lot from each other. They know each other really well, so they're um, playing with each other almost in the dialogue. It's like a very playful, um, intuitive kind of dialogue, and that takes a lot of getting used to, at least from my perspective. Reading a dialogue between old friends where so much is unspoken, but there's a lot of information being communicated. Um, this is not, for example, like a dialogue with Stevens and some stranger where they're not used to communicating with each other, so they have to verbalize a lot more. The sheriff and Stevens have known each other for long enough where they under they have this mutual understanding. There's a lot, they're like the dialogue itself is very sparse, but the way that I compelled myself to read in between the lines and the dialogue, it just took time and it took getting used to the text. And I think, you know, Hand Upon the Waters is a similar text in that regard, at least at the very beginning, because it takes, it took me a while, it took me three or four times of rereading that beginning, like, exposition section, which is very lengthy, it's very, like, dense. I read it on the podcast last time we looked at Hand Upon the Waters, and, you know, it's just like, it takes a while for the reader to get used to the world that Faulkner envisions. So another like key point that Duval makes at the very, very beginning, like the first page of his introduction, is that these are all like in the loose genre of detective stories, but only three of the stories involve Stevens solving actual crimes. And this is one of them. Um, so Hand Upon the Waters is one where Stevens actually solves a crime. It's very dramatic. Smoke is the other story that we reviewed earlier on, um, where it also involves Gavin Stevens solving a crime. Um, in the others, Stevens like prevents a crime or talks about like the um, kind of craziness of the legal system and the injustices there. Um, those are themes that we've all talked about um, on these various episodes. And I think what I'm noticing as we get along in this series, not only like reading more into these works, but also reviewing them and talking through them with you all in the show, is that there's so many similarities and touch points between these stories. It's not only that these are all standalone stories, they occur with some of the same characters, they occur within the same setting often, they occur within the same world. Um, and that's something that's very, like, so highly engaging because there's, for example, um, a lot of recurring, like, symbols or objects in the novels, for example, or not in the novels, in the short stories, excuse me. For example, um, Gavin Stevens's watch chain, the fact that Stevens himself is foreign. He um, is, you know, was educated partly in Europe, like in Heidelberg, and speaks all these different languages, and has sort of this very highly intellectual, educated understanding of not only the law, but of life. And the way that he 
engages socially is very different as well as we talked about last time when he is sort of talking with these neighbors in the last short story um he ends up saying tell me you know he's like listening to the neighbors but he's doing it in this very unconventional very almost uh robotic kind of unnatural way he's not you know gossiping with neighbors he's soliciting information from them And one thing that really stood out to me in this particular short story, An Error in Chemistry, is how restricted the setting is. Um, not, this sort of plays a role in the other stories, like Night's Gambit a little bit less so because there's different towns involved. Um, and for example, like tomorrow you know there's prison there's a couple other scenes but like in general like the setting is very restricted and it's very recurring that's something that i um have really enjoyed like how much wiggle room and creativity faulkner has within a restricted setting um and you know i've been thinking a lot about regionalism and like cormac mccarthy's work for example um, Joan Didion's work, very, like, regionalist. There is an argument, I know, for all authors being regionalists, but, you know, the way that I think about it is just how they use setting almost as if the setting was a character, and what characteristics, what symbols, what qualities they give the setting. And here the setting is very much one... Um, that carries with it a cultural tradition, um, it carries with it social class, that's a huge, like, proponent in, um, Faulkner's writing, um, is the different ways that social classes interacted, the ways that they spoke with each other, with each other. Faulkner is very, very sensitive to dialect and, um, regionalisms and the very minutia of language in the South at this time. Um, setting is also something that carries with it tradition, you know, and, and what uh, breaks from tradition, like what, what Southern means, quote-unquote. Um, the different settings in terms of like ruralism, but also what towns in the South meant to the people um, and what gathering looked like, what having private property looked like back then. Um, yeah, again, I could, I could keep going on culturalisms, what it meant to be foreign. We'll talk about that in um, Night's Gambit for sure. <laughs> um, and all of these things I think are just... Um, so expertly done in this short story especially considering like one thing that I really thought about a lot when I was reading was how Flint is foreign and it's a bad thing because his influence is considered bad on the town um his influence is considered like bad I think in terms of the error in chemistry itself you know, it's sort of a degradation of culture. Flint is seen as this, like, sort of outsider in terms of not having a normal job, for example, like being a circus man. Um, various associations, maybe, like, 
that he's a con man, for example, and he does end up fulfilling some of those expectations just objectively in the story. Um, but also Stevens is foreign, you know, and Stevens is, has this sort of interesting book ending where he's starting out in this town, goes away, comes back to the town, a changed and very different man. But there's constant allusions to Stevens's foreignness, whether it's, again, the way that he talks to people, his social uh, skills, his, uh, the things that he carries with him, like the fact that he has a car, his watch chain, um, what he, his sort of past as well, um, is very ambiguous in some senses. So what he did at Heidelberg, you know, um, what he did during the First World War. So all of those, um, come together though to, craft Stevens in Gavin Stevens, our detective hero, um, as an ultimately good figure. Like all, it's almost as if despite his oddities or in fact because of them, he's able to contribute to the town in a way that others maybe cannot. So yeah, it's this very tense dynamic I found between um, the, the theme of foreignness and the theme of like what does cultural heritage mean, what does um, indigeneity mean in this story, in this town, in this context, in this time, and in what ways does foreignness add or contrast with the context and the cultural context. And it... Um, Again, what I read in this story was that there were two manifestations, one in Flint, one of this kind of foreignness that was seen as um, very manipulative and uh, almost like a loss of culture or a degradation of it, making this sort of common drink in a completely <laughs> wrong way. And then there's a manifestation of foreignness where Gavin Stevens has the intellectual tools to start helping the town solve all of these different problems and to start helping the justice system actually contribute to justice. So that tension I just found so brilliant in this and we will definitely talk through that again next week uh, with Knight's Gambit. I'm gonna read from the text now. Let's talk through pages, let's start with page 82. I wanted to read some of this dialogue between the sheriff and Uncle, Steve, Uncle Stevens, um, which the narrator of the story, Chick, calls Uncle Gavin. Uh, Gavin Stevens, our detective again. So let's look at page 82, this great dialogue between the sheriff and Uncle Stevens. Quote, I was coming to that, the sheriff said. Nothing. Nothing, Uncle Gavin said. You didn't even see him? And the sheriff told that too. How, as he and the deputy and Flint stood on the gallery, they suddenly saw the old man looking out at them through a window, a face rigid, 
furious, glaring at them through the glass for a second and then withdrawn, vanished, leaving an impression of furious exultation and raging triumph and something else. Fear? Uncle Gavin said. Fear, the sheriff said. No, I tell you, he wasn't afraid. Oh? He said, you mean Pritchell. This time he looked at Uncle Gavin so long that at last Uncle Gavin said, all right, go on. And the sheriff told that too, how they entered the house, the hall, and he stopped and knocked at the locked door of the room where they had seen the face, and he even called old Pritchell's name and still got no answer, and how they went on and found Mrs. Flint on a bed in the back room with a shotgun wound in her neck and Flint's battered truck drawn up beside the back steps as if they had just got out of it, unquote. Like, what brilliant dialogue. Like, there's so much, like... The words, the actual verbal, like, communication that the sheriff and Gavin Stevens have is so sparse, but there's so much dense information communicated in this interaction. It's astounding the way that (laughs) um, Faulkner's dialogue functions here. Uh, Let's talk about page 88, a description. If you hear uh, paper noises, that's my bookmark falling around. (laughs) All right, let's see here, page 88. I love this description. Um, This is when Flint has escaped from prison and he's still at large. Quote, As though none of it had ever happened, Uncle Gavin said, as if Flint had not only never been in that cell, he had never existed at all. That triumvirate of murderer, victim, and bereaved, not three flesh-and-blood people, but just an illusion, a shadow play on a sheet. Not only neither men, nor women, nor young, nor old, but just three labels which cast two shadows for the simple and only reason that it requires a minimum of two in order to postulate the verities of injustice and grief. That's it. They have never cast but two shadows, even though they did bear three labels, names. It was as though only by dying did that poor woman ever gain enough substance and reality even to cast a shadow. Only her shadow still makes only two of them, and since old man Pritchell is still out there in that house, probably washing his dinner dishes now, provided he does wash them, Flint did not exist at all, did he? Unquote. So, yeah, the page 88, that's a sort of monologue by Gavin Stevens. Just the way that he's, like, working through these problems is so fascinating. The way that his, like, brain works, the way that he's looking through th- things, like, not only legally, but almost philosophically in a way. What a really rich description. Awesome. And let's go to pages 92 and 93. This is when the... The twist happens in the story. This is when the error in chemistry happened and the story and it is amazing. So let's start at page 92 at the bottom and page 93. Unquote. And then again, as when the woman had offered to come back and cook, he ruined it. Maybe I won't start tonight, he said, and then maybe again I will. But you folks want to get back to town, so we'll just drink to goodbye and better days. He unstoppered the decanter and poured whiskey into the three tumblers and set the decanter down and looked at the table. 
You boy, he said, hand me the water bucket. It's on the back gallery shelf. Then, as I turned and started toward the door, I saw him reach and to take up the sugar bowl and plunge the spoon into the sugar, and then I stopped too. And I remember Uncle Gavin's and the sheriff's faces, and I could not believe my eyes either as he put the spoonful of sugar into the raw whiskey and started to stir it. Because I had not only watched Uncle Gavin and the sheriff when he would come to play chess with Uncle Gavin, but Uncle Gavin's father too, who was my grandfather, and my own father before he died, and all the other men who would come to grandfather's house who drank cold toddies as we call them, and even I knew that to make a cold toddy you do not put the sugar into the whiskey, because sugar will not dissolve in raw whiskey, but only lies in a little intact swirl like sand at the bottom of the glass. That when you first put the water into the glass and dissolve the sugar into the water in a ritual almost, then you add the whiskey, and that anyone like old man Pritchell, who must have been watching men make cold toddies for 74 years, and had been making and drinking them himself for at least 53, would know this too. And I remember how the man we had thought was old man Pritchell realized too late what he was doing and jerked his head up just as Uncle Gavin sprang towards him and swung his arm back and hurled the glass at Uncle Gavin's head and the thud of the flung glass against the wall and the raw stink of the spilled whiskey from the decanter and Uncle Gavin shouting at the sheriff, Grab him, hub, grab him! Unquote. Okay, pages 92 and 93. Um, this is just the perfect place to end on for this episode. Such a fun short story. Um, those extra lines of text that kind of explain what's happening line by line. It's almost like one of those scenes in an action movie where it's like frozen in slow motion for a little bit. We're watching through Chick's eyes, uh, Gavin Stevens' uh, nephew. So just what a lovely like twist at the end of this short story, something that I did not expect at all. <laughs> like I was just like along in the uh, windmill of this entire story. And it was so, so well done. I didn't really expect the twist at all the first time I wrote, uh, read it. Um, and I would highly, highly recommend reading this short story. It's such a challenging read. I got a lot out of it. All right, that's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. We will be back with the last episode of this long series, six episodes over a couple months here on Night's Gambit by William Faulkner. Night's Gambit is the title piece of the collection and the last one we'll be reviewing, so if you don't want to miss it, we will be back next Monday. Enjoy.
If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.